In our biblical parenting series, we have looked first at the glory of biblical parenting and second at the blueprint for biblical parenting. And this morning, we look at the context for biblical parenting, which is a godly household. Our text is Hosea chapter 11 and verse 1. These are the words of God. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Our God and Father, we pray that you would open your word to us by the Holy Spirit and teach us how you parent your children so that we might imitate you with the children you have entrusted to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have seen that the heart of biblical parenting is to imitate God, while calling your children to imitate you in faith, love, and obedience. That's what Paul does with his spiritual children in Corinth. You see that in 1 Corinthians 11.1. He says, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. A vital part of our imitation of God is imitating how he parents his spiritual children. After all, God is the perfect father. Every practice of good parenting is an imitation of the father. Every practice of poor parenting is a failure to imitate the father. Everything God tells us to do with our children is something that he does with his children. Now, God gives us lots of do's and don'ts regarding parenting in Scripture, but what ties all those do's and don'ts together is God's own example. God's example is the picture that goes with the instructions. It shows us how everything fits together. If we do not follow God's example, we will inevitably end up parenting by preference and by personality. We will dismiss or downplay the things that are hard for us, the things we don't like to do. And then we will double up on the things that are easy for us, the things that we like to do. That's not the way parenting works. You cannot make up for an essential element by doubling down on something else. And that's where God's example keeps us on the right path. It shows us all the proper elements, all in the right proportion. Now, the most detailed example of God's parenting in Scripture would be found with his dealings with the children of Israel. At the time of the Exodus, the Bible pictures the children of Israel as toddlers, little children. At the time of the coming of Christ, his first advent, the children of Israel are pictured as children who have come of age. In other words, young adults. You can see them pictured as toddlers in our text in Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, that is, a little child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Paul picks up on that in Galatians chapter 4. 
And he pictures Israel after the Exodus as a little toddler prince. He's the prince. He's the heir to the throne. He, in principle, is the master of all. But when he's a toddler, he doesn't get to decide anything. He has stewards and guardians and tutors and nannies all telling him when to go to sleep, when to get up, what to eat, when to eat, and he does what he's told. And he is instructed in very basic lessons through very basic means, through concrete, tangible object lessons, the types and shadows of the Old Testament law. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses, after the 40 years of wilderness wanderings, explains to the people what God was doing during that 40 years. Deuteronomy 8 verse 2, The Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you, in other words, like a little toddler, to know what was in your heart, again, like a little child, whether you would keep his commandments or not, whether you would show respect and obedience, which are the first lessons. Verse 5, you should know in your heart that as a man chastens, that is, trains up his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. He trains you up. In Hebrews chapter 12, the same thing is applied to us as New Testament Christians. Verse 5, you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. And then he quotes Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the chastening. The word here is padea. If you've read at all about classical Christian education, you've probably heard that Greek term padea. It means training. It's everything, the whole Everything that's involved in in bringing a child up to godly maturity, it's instruction, it's correction, it's rebuke, it's physical correction or discipline, all of that. Do not despise the training of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens, He trains up. And scourges, this word means physical discipline, Every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, the Lord's training, God deals with you as with sons. So the example of God as parent is a thread that runs throughout Scripture, and it covers every aspect of parenting. Now, when God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, the first thing he did, the first parenting act he took was at Mount Sinai when he set up a household. He set up a little world where his children were governed by godly rules in a godly environment in order to train them up to godly maturity. The goal is for our households to imitate the main features of God's households So that our households, like his, are a powerful force for producing strong, glad, godly children. 
So what are the main features of God's household that we should imitate? Well, I mentioned just a second ago godly rules. You might call them house rules. God had a lot of rules for his household, but we're going to look at those next week. That's a topic to itself. We will look at that next week. This week, I want to look at three other big features of God's household, and they are, number one, God's goal, God's goal for his children. Number two, God's method, his method for achieving that goal. And number three, God's overall household environment, the atmosphere of his household. So let's look at number one. What was God's goal in setting up and arranging his house goal? It was to train up his children to be governed by a heart of faith, love, and wisdom. To train up his children to be governed by a heart of faith, love, and wisdom. Love. Jesus teaches us that loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength is the greatest commandment. And he teaches us that the second greatest commandment is another love commandment. It is to love our neighbor as ourself. On these two affirmative love commandments hang all the law and the prophets Jesus teaches us. Matthew 22:37 to 40. Faith. Where does faith come in? Well, the first thing that love does toward God is to believe him and trust him. That's the first expression of love toward God. Believe him and trust in him. That's faith. So faith is the first response of respect and love for God. 1 Timothy 1 verse 5. Now the purpose of the commandment is love. Where does love come from? From a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Galatians 5 verse 6. In Christ Jesus, what avails, what counts, is faith working through love. What about wisdom? Where does wisdom come into this equation? Proverbs 4 verse 7. Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. Well, we just heard from Christ how love is the principal thing. That's the greatest commandment. Now we hear from Solomon that wisdom is the principal thing. Which is it? Is it love or is it wisdom? Well, it's both because they are two sides of the same coin as presented in Scripture. Think of it this way. Love is the palette of beautiful colors that we use to paint a beautiful picture. Wisdom is the skill to blend and apply those colors in real life so that true beauty results. Or think of it this way. Love is the deep desire of the heart for the glory of God and the objective good and blessing of our neighbor. Wisdom is the skill to turn that desire into actions, words, and expressions that are, the, that are appropriate for each moment. Listen to how Paul blends faith, love, and wisdom in Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 3. Stating in pertinent part, We give thanks to God for you, since we heard of your faith, 
and of your love for all the saints. Verse 9, we pray that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So God's goal for which he set up his household was to train up his children to be governed by a heart of faith, love, and wisdom. And that ought to be our goal in setting up our households in regard to the children God has entrusted to us. The second feature of God's household that we ought to imitate is God's method. How, what is he going to do within his household to produce this heart of faith, love, and wisdom by which the children should be, be self-governing? Well, his method is what you might call the immersion method. Because he immersed his children in his word. He immersed them in the word written, the word spoken, and the word lived out. Plus, he added correction and discipline. And all of that blend was for the purpose of taking the law of faith, love, and wisdom from outside to inside his children. And from taking the folly that was inside his children to outside his children. So the goal is to take the faith, the law of faith, love, and wisdom from outside to in. And the goal is to take the folly that is in the heart from inside to out. And he's doing that by immersing his children in his word, plus the use of correction and discipline. Now only the Holy Spirit can take the law of faith, love, and wisdom from outside to in. And only the Holy Spirit can perform the heart surgery that is needed to take the folly within the heart from inside to out. But by God's design, the Holy Spirit uses means. And one of the most important means is parents following God's method. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, we say this every single week at the end of the service. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. What does that look like? How is that lived out? These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. So where does this start, parents? This starts with parents living out the word. Because the word is in their heart. And so the parents are a living example to the children. Then what results from that? The immersion method. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. And you shall bind them on a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, That doesn't necessarily mean literally that you have to have Bible verse graffiti all over the inside and outside of your house. You can, uh, but what it's really talking about is that the Word of God loved and lived is everywhere your children look. The Word of God loved and lived is everywhere your children look. Because you can put Bible graffiti everywhere 
and not keep this commandment. But if you have the word of God loved and lived everywhere your children look, then you are keeping this commandment. Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 31 to 33 tells us the effect of the new covenant, which would be to take the law from outside to inside, to write the law on the hearts and minds of God's people. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. In other words, to fully come to experience what it means for God to be our God and us to be his people. We have to have his law of faith, love and wisdom written in our minds and written on our hearts so that that is what is the guiding principle and the motivating, empowering principle of our lives. That's biblical maturity. And that's what's supposed to happen by time our children come of age, by time they were able to make decisions with substantial independence, by the time they are able to make decisions that are going to have long-term consequences for better or for worse for them and others, by the time they begin to experience for real what sowing and reaping is all about. Last week we looked at a group of young princes. We read about them in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child. In other words, he's a grown man, but he's a child. And your princes feast in the morning, saying the same thing. Who feasts in the morning? Well, obviously they're grown up enough to act independently. But who feasts in the morning and gets drunk in the morning? Little kids and adult bodies. Blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles and your feast... And your princes feast at the proper time. The answer to this problem is not forbidding feasting. We don't need to pass a constitutional amendment to forbid feasting because somebody might do it wrong. Maturity says do it right for the right reason. They feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. So where is the law of faith, hope, and wisdom for the first group of young princes, the ones who are feasting in the morning and getting drunk? That law is outside them. They're aware of that law. They know it. They've been taught it. They know it intellectually. It has no governing power over them from within. Where's the law of faith, hope, and wisdom for the second group of princes? who on their own, not because their parents are watching, not because anybody's standing over them, but on their own, they don't feast in the morning. They don't get drunk. They feast at the proper time for the right reason. And so their feasting results in strength. The law of faith, hope, and wisdom for them is inside. It's in their minds. It's in their hearts. And it governs them from within. So the second group of princes is motivated and governed by faith, love, and wisdom from God's Word living within them by the Holy Spirit. The first group still needs external enforcement to keep them from doing what is wrong and destructive. Unfortunately, they now have adult bodies, even though they still have the minds of little children. 
So that's what it looks like Solomon is showing us when the law of faith, hope, and, and wisdom, faith, love, and wisdom goes from outside to inside. And it's also what happens when folly that is in the heart goes from inside to outside. The Bible also talks about that, Proverbs 22:15. Foolishness or folly is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. Now, what is folly? In the, in, in the wisdom literature of the Bible, folly is what makes one a fool. And a fool is one who despises wisdom and instruction, Proverbs 1, verse 7. So a fool means someone who is rebellious and stubborn and unteachable. It says in Proverbs 29.9, when you try to reason with a fool, he will either rage or laugh, and there will be no peace. And it tells us there in Proverbs 22.15 that folly is bound in the heart of a child, not just found in the heart of a child, bound in the heart of a child, in a fallen world. You don't have to plant the folly. You don't have to do anything for it to be there. We are all born with it bound up in our heart. Folly in our hearts in a fallen world, when we come into this world, is like the rocks in the soil that Jesus talked about in the parable of the sower. I have it there in your outline from the, from the Gospel of Luke. He talked about the seed that falls on the rocky ground and springs up quickly. So you have response to the Word of God. You have a manifestation of faith. But he says it quickly gets scorched by the sun because of the fact that there's rocks all in the soil and the roots cannot get down. They can't deepen and get the moisture and so the plant is scorched and killed. Folly is like those rocks. It's bound up in the soil. It has to be dug out. That's part of parenting as well. So we have to feed and water the plant while digging out the rocks and digging up the thorns and thistles that will choke out the plant. That's the way the Bible, and Jesus in particular, presents the little children he gives to us. That's the way he pictures them. Jesus uses the little child when his uh, disciples shooed away people who were trying to bring little bitty babies to Jesus. Jesus got onto the disciples and says, do not forbid them. Let them bring the little children to me, for of such is the kingdom of God. And then he went a step further. He said, unless you become as a little child, You cannot enter the kingdom of God. What Jesus is telling us there is that when God forms a child and entrusts a child to Christian parents, and those Christian parents tell that little one about God, about Jesus, about Adam and Eve, and Noah, and Moses, and Samson, and Sarah, and Hannah, and John the Baptist, and tells all about these things, that little child is going to believe you 100%. As to genuineness, says Jesus, the little child is the prototype. Not as to the maturity of faith, not as to strength of faith, not as to fruitfulness or wisdom of faith, 
For that, it is the mature adult believer who is the prototype. But as, as to pure, genuine faith without any kind of guile or manipulativeness or hypocrisy, it is the little child who is the prototype. We say the little children, we're like the disciples, we say the, the little children must become like us for them to have access to Jesus, whether it's through baptism, the Lord's Supper, or otherwise. They have to become like us. They have to be able to string together theological propositions. Jesus says, you have it backwards. You have to become like them. As to genuineness. Now, as to maturity, wisdom, strength, fruitfulness, yes, they must become like us. And so, Jesus says... There are little children, when we plant the word there, they will respond with genuine faith. That's the way God made it. But he says, you have to keep feeding that plant, that response of faith. You have to keep feeding it, watering it, and you have to get the rocks out of the soil. You have to get the thorns and thistles out of the soil. That's the way God presents it to us in the Bible. The third feature of God's household that we ought to imitate in our households is the overall environment or atmosphere, which is one of gratitude and joy. An overall environment and atmosphere of gratitude and joy. Now, it's easy for us to kind of look past this and to want to get on to the rules of God's household. Again, we're going to look at that next week. But we have to see, first of all, that all the rules that God gave within his household, they had a context. There was an atmosphere. There was an aroma to his household that provided the context for everything else. And that atmosphere was gratitude and joy. Think about all the things that God did in this household he made to to create this atmosphere of gratitude and joy. The entire calendar was built around a number of feasts, huge feasts. The weekly Sabbath, every single week, was supposed to be a special time of rejoicing, gratitude, and joy. And of course, even then, the macro calendar all move toward every 50 years, the year of Jubilee. All of these ways God is building in this atmosphere of gratitude and joy. The joy of the Lord is your strength, says Nehemiah in chapter 8, verse 10. Now this was an occasion, I talked about it some last week, where the people were sad. They were not already joyful. And, and then Nehemiah saying, well, the joy of, your Lord, of the Lord is your strength. No, the people were sad. That, that's the reality. That's what was going on in their hearts. They're sad because in this worship service, they got reminded of all the generations of unfaithfulness toward the Lord that had led them off into Babylonian captivity 
Now they've been brought back to Jerusalem, but they still have enemies everywhere. They're struggling to build the walls. They need to rebuild the temple and so forth. They're under all of this hardship. That's the situation. And they're reminded of all of their shortcomings and sin. And so they are sad. But as an objective matter, they are told, no, this is what you do. Regardless of how you feel, this is what you do. Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet. In other words, rejoice, feast. Send portions to those for whom nothing's prepared, those who don't have any. You're coming to our house. We already got steaks on the grill. You're coming to our house. Why? Why should they do that? Because this day is holy to our Lord. The greater reality of our lives is not what we have done or what our situation is. It's who God is and what he has done. That's what determines how we objectively act. This day is holy to the Lord. Do not sorrow. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And then we're told that the people did this. They acted. They went. They ate the sweet. They ate the fat. They drank the sweet. They sent portions. They had others over. They objectively rejoiced and gave thanks to the Lord. David tells us that the joy of the Lord's salvation is key to witness Psalm 51, verse 12. Now, this is another time of sadness because this is David's great confessional psalm where he confesses his sin, uh, both the adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband and of other nameless men who were part of it and who got killed as well as part of the cover-up. So this is bad stuff. And David is coming to the Lord for forgiveness. And David says in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And he says in verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. So the joy of salvation plays an essential role in witness. Joy in the Holy Spirit is an essential characteristic of the kingdom of God, says Paul in Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God, he says, is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We're confronted here, though, with a high wall to climb over because here's the reality. Genuine joy is not something you can whistle up. It's not something you can conjure up. We can try to make ourselves act joyful. We cannot snap our fingers and produce actual joy within us. That's where gratitude comes in because joy is the byproduct of gratitude. If you pursue joy straight ahead, you'll never find it. Every time you reach for it, it'll scoot away from you. Pursue gratitude. You get a heart of gratitude, it'll pull joy in by the hand with it. That's where joy comes from. Where does gratitude come from? Gratitude is a byproduct of doing something, of giving thanks. Giving thanks is something we can do 
regardless of how we feel. That's what the people were told in Nehemiah 8. They were not just told, conjure up some feelings in your heart. They were said, they were told, here's the reality. The greatest reality is not how you feel or what you've done in the past. The greatest reality is who God is, what he's done in the past, and what he's going to do in the future. That's the reality. Now, here's something you do. You respond with thanksgiving. You respond with rejoicing. As Christians, we are to be characterized by the giving of thanks always for all things to the God and Father, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 5.20. That's not telling us anything how to feel. That's telling us what to do. To give thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit uses to produce then a heart of gratitude. And that gratitude pulls joy in by the hand. That's the way the joy of the Lord's salvation comes about. Psalm 34 verse 1, Old Testament says the same thing. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. That doesn't say a single word about how he felt. It's talking about what he's going to do. The Lord's blessing will be in his mouth at all times. His praise shall continually be upon his lips. That's what he's going to do. That's where a heart of gratitude comes from. That's where the joy of the Lord's salvation comes from. Now, we should not miss the fact that giving of thanks, that activity, is the heart of worship. Hebrews 13, verse 15. By Him, by Jesus Christ, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. Now that's Old Testament worship language. The sacrifice of praise. That's what he's saying. Let us continually worship God. With the sacrifice of praise, what is the sacrifice of praise? It is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to His name. That is the very heart of worship. We gather together, we give thanks to God. Or you, even by yourself, you worship God because you give thanks to Him. So giving thanks to God is the key to cultivating a heart of gratitude, and gratitude is the key to joy. And this heart and habit should fuel the atmosphere of our households because that's what God intended for His household. Now one thing that we need to be clear on here is this this activity of constantly giving thanks to God cultivating a heart of gratitude, cultivating the joy of the Lord's salvation, that does not require a particular type of personality. Because some people, by God's design, are naturally extrovertish, they're more bubbly people, they're more effusive. In other words, they're, they're Mediterraneans. And, um, but this is not requiring a certain personality type. You can be a Northern European And still do this. God created introverts as well as extroverts. God created people who are more quiet as well as those who are more uh, outward 
It's not calling for a certain personality. Regardless of that, you can be a person who is characterized by the giving of thanks to God, cultivating that heart of gratitude, and then the joy of the Lord. You can be the quiet type and still have a disposition of thankfulness and joy. That's what we're talking about. So the three features of God's household that we want to imitate on the front end, three means that the Holy Spirit uses to mature our children up unto the Lord. Number one, the goal, which is a heart of faith, love, and wisdom governing our children. Number two, God's method, that is immersion in the word, written, spoken, and lived out in order for the Holy Spirit to work to take the law of faith, hope, and love from outside to inside, plus correction and discipline to take folly from the inside of our children to the outside. And finally, the atmosphere of God's household, which was the atmosphere of gratitude and joy driven by continually giving thanks to the Lord. The next week we'll begin to look at what kind of rules that God set up in his household. I submit these things to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.